Okay, we will be reading God's word from Acts 2, starting at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being served. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Kathy. And just to remind you, new practice here, introducing a new practice at uh, Grace Valley. You'll see at the bottom of the reading, there is this, this is the word of the Lord. Response, all say thanks be to God. Many of you are familiar with that practice already. And so whenever someone at the end of the reading would say like, this is God's word or something, you'd be like, thanks. So now we just know to do it. And it's a very old practice, in fact. It's one of the oldest practices in, uh, in the Christian church, dating all the way back to the, the earliest church. And so we're simply participating in the church universal and the church historic as we, uh, as we make this our practice as well. Uh, we've been uh, looking through the book of Acts together uh, just for a few weeks now, but we're, uh, we're starting to gain traction as we study this pa- these passages in Acts, trying to understand the answer to this question. How on earth did this new religion that started uh, according to the testimony of um, a bunch of peasants and, and fishermen and uh, very kind of non-powerful, influential people in, a, in this backwater portion of the great Roman Empire, how on earth did it grow so rapidly from its inception to the point where now it is the, the most dominant religion on the face of the planet? Now, you'll remember as we looked at uh, the beginning of Acts chapter 1, that the mission that Jesus gave the church was for them to be his witnesses uh, to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And in verse 1, we, or sorry, verse 41 of chapter 2, we discover that uh, they had a pretty good start of it because it says in verse 41 um, that God added to their numbers um, uh, daily, or sorry, that day, about 3,000. So after Peter's first sermon, about 3,000 people came to faith. And later, a couple chapters later, we'll discover that the number grew very quickly to 5,000 believers in this church in uh, Jerusalem. So it's an absolutely astronomical and remarkable increase in people who believed this story that Jesus was the Son of God who came into this world to live the life that you and I couldn't live, die the death that you and I deserve to die, and then miraculously, he actually came back from the dead, resurrected, never to die again. 
That's the story. That's what they believed. Now, in verse 47, it says that after that unique event where so many people came to to faith at, at one time, it says in verse 47, it says that the Lord added to their number, this is the early church, it added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was maybe a more sustainable uh, growth trajectory, but it was still pretty amazing. I mean, it was regularly, it was common for people to believe in Jesus and join the church. It was not a surprise when a person who had not believed in God for a long, long time or had believed in the pantheon of Greek gods for a long, long time came to believe that there was one God and his son was Jesus Christ, that was a normal occurrence in the church. Now, how cool would that be if that was a normal occurrence in Grace Valley Church? That regularly we had people coming to faith and some of them being baptized. There are many people who come to faith who've been baptized already, frankly, and so you maybe don't know that there are people coming to faith because you don't see as many baptisms and dramatic kind of events like that, but wouldn't it be awesome Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be amazing if it was just a regular occurrence that people uh, encountered Jesus in and through Grace Valley Church and came to faith in Him? And we didn't like go, whoa, what a special Sunday to see this person stand up and say, I once was lost, but now I'm found and I'm I'm excited to be part of God's family here. And we didn't like, or, or, or maybe it's so special, like every, you know what I'm saying? You know, we always get cake when it happens. And I guess we could keep getting cake. But we'd be like, oh yeah, cake. We're having cake today. It's normal. Instead of, whoa, it's a cake day. What's happening? That's what I'm trying to get at. Now, there is only one way that this is going to happen ultimately. There's only one way this is going to happen. And that is evidenced in verse 47 as well. As well. Uh, where it says that the Lord added to their number. It's only going to happen if God does incredible things in and through this community and in the hearts of people who don't necessarily believe. That's the only way that this is going to happen. The question becomes, what are the means by which God does that? How does he work in and through the hearts of people who don't believe? And what is the church's role in being a witness to Jesus Christ so that skeptics uh, have their questions answered, doubters have their doubts overcome, and people who have been broken by life and sin find healing in this community. Well, there are features that a biblical church ought to have that makes it attractive to those who don't know Jesus Christ and therefore makes Jesus attractive to those who don't know Jesus Christ. Uh, The church grew regularly and it grew consistently because there were characteristics, there were qualities of the church, the early church, that, that made the gospel attractive to those who didn't yet know Jesus. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this portrait here in Acts chapter 2 of the early church. And we're going to, to, to read it and it's, you know, 
you can read this when you're a pastor, especially when you read these, these verses. It gets really depressing really fast <laughs> because it's this picture of the church that was so awesome and it was so perfect it looked like uh, that you can get down really, really quickly and you can say, no matter how good my church may be, we're not this. And, and you can feel like what you need to do is you need to stand up in front of your church and you need to like berate them for not being like this. And it's your fault that you're not being like this and that's why the gospel isn't being powerfully communicated to the world around us. Now, I've had to wrestle with that a lot this week in my own heart and in my own mind. You guys know that I am a, sometimes an intense person. And so I'm one of those guys who can easily turn into a berater. Um, and, but by God's grace... He has worked on me through his spirit and through people this week that I'm not going to berate. You're all like, oh, good. Come on, it's Mother's Day. We want to leave happy. Um, But I said portrait for a reason. I said that this was a portrait of the early church, and I use that term specifically for a reason because here's the reality, okay? When you are thinking about sending out your Christmas cards as a family, um, Sometimes some of you go and get a family picture and then you put it on one of those cards, right? And you, you send it out to people. So what do you do? You, you dress nice, you do your hair, everybody puts a smile on their face and they take a picture. Now there's actually, there's this great family, they're in this church, I won't name them, but they're in this church and they send out a Christmas card like that. But then they also send out like the true version of their family on the other side of the card, which is like them pulling each other's hair and fighting and stuff like that. Because that's what families are really like. But when we, when we take a portrait of ourselves to present to the world, we try to make ourselves look good. Now, that's an accurate portrait very often of our family, but it doesn't tell the whole story. And so this portrait that we're going to look at here in Acts chapter 2 is a picture of the early church kind of at its best. You keep reading Acts and things go south relatively quickly, and we'll get to that. You read about the church in Corinth, and it's a complete and utter disaster because the church is always made up of sinful human beings who are just screwed up. And so what do they do? They screw up. And so the church is not perfect. It's not, it's not perfect. So this is an idealistic, aspirational portrait of the church that I'd like us to look at together. Now, the sermon has morphed a lot over the course of the week. Um, this is actually a, a portion of Scripture that a lot of preachers will preach maybe even half a dozen sermons on because there's so many things in it. We're not going to do that. I'm also not going to just kind of point out the features of this passage quickly and move on. Through conversation, through my own wrestling, through the Holy Spirit at work in my heart, I I have a message for you that is going to be limited to a couple of features. So I don't even know if, to be honest, if the outline works anymore. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, So just scratch out what's typed there and just write all over it however you want. And I don't even know if I have a a real outline. I kind of do. Um, But let me say at the very beginning again, and I did this last week, and I can't keep doing this because that's like like cheating. You know, I I tell you at the beginning, this is going to be a tough one, guys. 
And that makes you all go, ooh, now I really want to listen, right? I can't keep using that trick. It's like, it's like uh, the boy who cried wolf, right? Eventually, you're not going to listen. But this is going to be a tough one, guys. Okay, because as God has been working on me this week, and as he's been pushing this portrait of the church in front of me over and over again, I've been trying to get out from underneath what it says. And I guarantee that you're going to try to get out from underneath what it says. I was squirming under the weight of this passage and under the call of God to what it means to really be the church, and you're probably going to squirm too. But it's okay, because we're in this together, and that's one of the big points. So stick with me, okay? What we're going to look at is we're going to look at two practices in particular that were central to the work of the early church and that were critical in, in the church having this effect on the culture around it. And the first one we're going to look at is right here in verse 42 where it says, and they, speaking about the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, why is this the first thing? The early church did all kinds of stuff. And you could describe all kinds of practices and activities that the church was involved in. But this one is first in line. And the reason that this one is first in line, scholars will tell you, is because every other practice of the church hangs on this practice of the church. In other words, it's like the hub of the wheel, right? You got the wheel, you got the spokes. The hub is what gives integrity to the whole wheel. And the uh, devotion to the apostles' teaching was the thing that held everything together. It was like the, the engine that drove the church. So it was absolutely paramount. And so the first lesson for us this morning is simply this. If Grace Valley is a church where we help people a lot, and we do lots of outreach in, in helping people with, let's say, poverty reduction, or helping people with their housing situations, or helping people uh, find jobs, and those kinds of things. These are all good things. If we give a lot of money to different causes, but we're not doing this first and foremost, we're not really being the church. Poverty reduction, advocacy, social justice, all these kinds of things, these are super important, these are super good, these are super helpful, but these things are not the center, you see. It says here that they got together a lot. In verse 46, look what it says. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Day by day, attending the temple together. The early church got together all the time to study the Word. It's a record, it, and actually there are more records out, like after the New Testament. You know, there's some writings by uh, John Chrysostom. There's writings by Justin Martyr. There's writings by Clement. These are church, what, are, what we call the church fathers. So these are the guys who were kind of guiding and directing the church after the apostles. And you can read their records and you can, you're astounded by how the early church sought out, looked for, were hungry for the teachings of the Bible. And what's really remarkable and amazing about this, especially as I compared it to my own life, these were people who were mostly slaves and servants who didn't get to come and go as they pleased. They worked really long hours, 60 hours a week was nothing to them. 
These were people who lived in a subsistence culture, meaning that every day they worked for their daily bread. It wasn't like you and I who uh, have our daily bread at hand quite obviously and, and, and regularly. They literally had to work each day for it and they still made the, the apostles' teaching a priority. And they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have it like you and I had. So what did they need to do? They needed to go find the apostles, be where the apostles were, and listen to the apostles. That's, that was their only option. This is how it needs to be at Grace Valley. Somehow. We, we need to long for the Bible and long to understand what the Bible says and what the Bible has to teach us and guide us, direct us, not just about how to live in this world, but who God is. And we need to know it in our bones. You know, it was said of um, John Bunyan. You guys know who John Bunyan is? What did he write that is famous? Pilgrim's Progress, which everybody should read. I was talking to someone the other day who didn't like it at all. It was terrible to hear that in my heart. But they had read it at least, thankfully. It was said of John Bunyan that when you cut him, he bled Bible. And it's true, if you read Pilgrim's Progress, it's all, and now it's an allegory. So, oh yeah, Tolkien. Somebody told me Tolkien didn't like Pilgrim's Progress. And they told me that they themselves thought it was boring. But I still love that person. Um, the allegory bled Bible. And you see, when you, when you let the Bible sink into you, things happen, okay? So, I, I counseled a, a, a young man a little while ago who was going through some really hard stuff and trying to talk it through and, and doing, you know, pastoral counseling, that kind of thing. And, and finally, at the end of, of one of our talks, I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I gave him a portion of Scripture, and I said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take this portion of Scripture, and it wasn't that long, five verses, eight verses maybe. And I said, I want you to read this every day for the next two weeks and think about it and meditate on it, Okay. Now, I had given him some pretty good pastoral advice, I thought, on some things. But we came back two weeks later, and I said, so how are you now? And he said, I'm way better. I've made progress on this issue. I've made progress on this issue. I've made progress on this issue. Three, partic three particular issues. He had made progress. I said, help me understand. How did you make progress? He took me to the passage. He said, oh, I was just wrestling what God says about me here. And I just was really thinking about it and just praying through that. And it just, I don't know, it clicked somehow. And then he said, I, I, this right here, I applied this to this part of my, my issue. And it affected him. Friends, I guess what I'm trying to say is, this book, I don't know if you and I realize how powerful it actually is. Like, we want books about the Bible, it seems, more than we want the Bible sometimes. But this book, if we would read this book, this is why if I can ever have a skeptic come to me and say, look, I'm, I'm really interested in figuring this out. I'd like to try. I always say to them, let's go through the book of Mark or let's go through the book of John. Get them in the Bible. Get them in the Bible because this book has power and it doesn't just have power to convert people to faith in Jesus Christ. It has power to work on believers in order that they become the kind of people that skeptics look at and say, I want to be like that. They were devoted 
to this word. Um, what's the most important thing a church can do? Probably this, but there's nothing more important than this for a church to sit under careful, gospel-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered, relevant preaching of the Bible. But that's not just here on Sunday, it's also in our homes. You know, this is kind of what the book club is about. This is why we do sermon discussions in, in engage groups, trying to encourage people to engage the Word and what the Word has to say about life. Now, listen, reading the Bible, I will tell you straight out, and studying Scripture and understanding theology, none of it will guarantee healthy spiritual life. But, and this is a really important but, I've never ever seen a truly healthy spiritual life in a person without it. And the feeding's got to be regular. Um, when I was trying to learn how to grow stuff in my garden, that kind of thing, uh, I would, you know, I, I wouldn't, I, you know, things weren't growing well or whatever, and I'd be like, oh, I got to fertilize. So I'd buy some fertilizer, and then I'd go out, and I'd just like douse my garden with this fertilizer. And a, and a grower came to me and said, that's stupid. <laughs> like, oh, why is that stupid? He said, well, think about it. Uh, in order to live, do you have three meals a day or do you have like one massive meal a week? And I thought, yeah, I guess that would probably kill me if I tried to have one massive meal a week and not eat the rest of the, of the week. And he said, it's the same thing with the plants. They need regular feeding. And so you and I, spiritually, we need regular feeding coming to church regularly, regularly, not once a month, but regularly sitting under the preaching of the word and regularly opening it in our homes together and regularly opening it by ourselves as we, as we feed on it. Do we trust that the Bible can really do something? Take the 30-day challenge. I, I don't even know if it exists. I'm making it up right here on the spot. The 30-day challenge. Ten minutes a day, don't skip a single day. Ten, min ten minutes a day, read your Bible. Ten minutes. And see what happens after a month. Those of you who don't know Jesus, maybe you'll meet him. Those of you who know him, but your relationship with him is kind of bland, it'll get sparked. Okay, that's the first one. The first practice. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. This is the one that's really radical, okay? They weren't just devoted to the apostles' teaching. It says that they were devoted to the fellowship. The fellowship. Now, that's a Greek word, koinonia. Some of you may have heard that word before. And basically what Luke is describing here is that the church, he says, were together all the time. They could not get enough of each other. They were with one another. They were, it's like they were hungry for the word, but they were also hungry for each other to the point where it seems like regular life was almost an interruption to what they were really about, which was the, com the fellowship, the community being together. Now listen, 
You hear me, and pastors do this all the time. We say to you, maybe in a sermon like this, or we say to you when we corner you in the fellowship time after church, like, you know, why don't you come to church more? Why aren't you here more? Or why don't you go to this event? Or how come you weren't there? And why aren't you involved in this? And we feel guilty and we go, huh? The apostles never had to do that. They never had to do that. Nowhere in the book of Acts do you hear the apostles telling the congregation, get together, come to this, be here for that. They didn't have to because they couldn't stop them. People wanted to be there because they were devoted to each other. Look at verses 44 and 45. All who believed were together. They were together. It was a way of being. It's not just that they came together occasionally. They were together. They were knit together. They were a community. They were a family. It was, a, it was an identity for them. All of them, it says, they were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, uh, the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, you read that and maybe you go, oh man, what is this, communism, some kind of hippie culture? Is that what the, the early church was like? Is this Haight-Ashbury or something like that and these people all living in a commune? No. As you read through the rest of Acts, you realize people had their own homes. How could they break bread in their homes, for example, if they didn't have homes? The point was this. They cared, with each, cared for each other with such intensity that they did it in, in personal and sacrificial ways. In other words, they acted like a real family. I want to unpack that for us this morning for a minute, okay? We're going to kind of camp out on this idea for, for a couple of minutes. Remember Luke wrote this? Luke wrote Acts. So Luke is also the guy who wrote Luke. If you go back to Luke chapter 18, there's this fascinating interchange that Jesus has with a rich young ruler, and at the end of this interchange, this rich young ruler who's asking, what it's, how do I follow God? What do I have to do to earn eternal life? That kind of stuff. And Jesus and him have this interchange. Finally, at one point, Jesus says to this man this. Um, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. And it says, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. In other words... He wasn't saying you actually have to sell all your stuff. He's saying your problem is, is that you are attached to the, to the things of this world and to wealth and, and you have to kill that idol. And the man walked away sad because he couldn't do it. And so you read further and Jesus says this to his disciples who are listening to him say these things to this man. He says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is commenting on this. Then the disciples say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, what is impossible for man to accomplish is possible with God. And then Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, he says to Jesus, he says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Other translations say, we have left everything to follow you. And then Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers 
or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Now, when we listen to that and we hear that, we think, we go, okay, I get, I get it that when I die and I go to heaven to be with Jesus, that I will get back much more than I give, back, give up. But, but what on earth is Jesus talking about when he says that you will receive back many more in this life? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's anticipating the church. Because you see, there are people, there were people then, there continue to be around the world, and in this country as well, people who if they give their life to Jesus, if they actually confess that He is Lord of their lives and get baptized and join a church, they will lose their family. Their family will turn their back on them, their parents will disown them, they will be cut out of the inheritance and, and they will have nothing. But Jesus is saying it is worth it because you get a new one. Us. You may lose that biological family, but you will gain that spiritual family. And he's saying that we have a responsibility to one another as the family of God that is the same as our responsibility would be to our biological family. He makes no distinction, okay? And we understand that on some level that we have this responsibility to one another. We write checks to, uh, for benevolence to help out people who are, who are in need in our community. But it's more than that. It's more than that because you see Jesus is saying they get a family. What is a family? What is a home? A family and a home is a place where, where you know that you are always accepted, where you know that these people have got your back in a healthy one, okay? It, it is a place where you know that, that you can always go there, that you will be cared for, and that you will be loved. Simple application. There should be nobody in this community that has nowhere to go on a holiday. Now, that may seem a little pushy, and you're like, oh, I'm squirming a little bit, but that is just the beginning, peeps. Let's go further. See, we live in Western culture, and in Western culture, we are highly individualistic. And we don't understand how far the early church actually went to care for them. Again, look at verse 45. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. Again, this isn't communism, but it is a willingness to sacrifice financially for each other. As each were able and voluntarily and only occasionally, this wasn't, a, 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 again, this wasn't communism, but radically they were willing to not impoverish themselves, but they were willing to sacrifice their own financial well-being for one another. Now today, times are a little bit different with the rise of the welfare state. Uh, we have social uh, uh, safety nets and these kinds of things that didn't exist back then, but the principle remains the same. 
And I've seen amazing things in this community already, frankly, of people doing this kind of thing for one another. You have, you, someone needs a job, and you have employment, and you offer them a job. That's great. That's a simple example that I've seen happen here. But what about this? And I have debated whether to throw this one out there or not, but I'm going to throw it out there. Dundas is a very expensive place to live. And some of us in this community might possibly have the means to help others who don't have the means to live here on their own to make it possible for them to live here for the sake of the mission of this church. We could build an apartment in our basement. We could buy a house together. We could offer an interest-free loan to someone so that they are able to obtain a mortgage. And maybe you're thinking, well, oh, man, come on, Paul. This, that makes it messy. That makes it complicated. That, that's going too far. Is that even very stewardly of my use of my material wealth that God has blessed me? Because if I invest it properly, that kind of thing, I have more to give away, etc. And now you're starting to really sound like a socialist, so back off. We don't like that here. But listen, okay, listen, this is Acts chapter 4. This is just a couple chapters later, and Luke is commenting on the same kind of activity, and he says something unbelievable, beginning at verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. Listen to this, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the part where I was like squirming like crazy. This is radical, okay? Radical generosity, probably on a scale that most of us have never seen before here in our Western culture. But if you go to other places around the world, this is normal practice in the church. I don't have a lot saved up for my retirement. I've always been a Freedom 85 kind of guy. But the little bit that I have, I'm wondering why is it sitting there as I read these passages. My poor wife is sitting in church in the church going, whoa, Vandenbrink, we didn't talk about this beforehand. What are you doing? But notice what it says there. They didn't see it as their own. They didn't see their prosperity as their own stuff. Now, I'm not saying, again, it's not communism. Like, my lawnmower is my lawnmower. I bought my lawnmower. It's not your lawnmower. It's my lawnmower. Funny I use that because I don't have a lawnmower. <laughs> I borrow my neighbor's. <laughs> but ultimately, it's not really mine. It's been given to me by God to be used for what? For the kingdom. For the advancement of the cause of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. To bless the community. My church family. 
So that when people who aren't part of that church family, they look at my church family and they see what me and others do for one another. And some of us are able to do more on the financial end of things than others. And some of us are able to do a lot more on the preaching or teaching or guiding or whatever side of things than a lot others. I remember going to visit donors when, when we were starting Grace Valley Church. I had never fundraised before and I'm sitting down with people and I'm saying, so what do you think? You got $50,000 to help a little church start? Like who's got the guts to dare say that? Or a hundred? And they would look at me, and they would not look at me like I was crazy, and how dare I ask. They would look at me, and they would say, look, there are things that I can do that you can't do. I can make money. God has given me an ability, I guess. But I can't preach. And so together, the things that I can do and the things that you two can do, together they work for the advancements of the kingdom of God. So I may not have a lot to give, but I'll tell you this right now. i got a pretty nice hybrid trailer that my family likes to use to go camping. When we're not using it, you are free to borrow it. All you young peeps who can't afford to ever go on a really cool vacation, but you hate sitting in a tent all the time, come borrow my trailer. It's just one pathetic <laughs> attempt by me. But really, that's what the fostering heart is all about. I got a house. I got space. My wife and I have talked I don't know how many times about what should she go back to work. We could make a lot more money if she went back to work. We decided that we really want to foster because we're, we're, we're into this and so she doesn't work and so we don't make as much. Big deal. Remember your family, okay? This is what's really been pressing upon me. What would you do for your kids? Parents, how far would you go for your kids? What about your brother and sister? Maybe you're sitting here and thinking, well, yeah, but are we going to... Uh, oh, i got to hurry up. Are we going to uh, um, uh, condone like irresponsible behavior if we got this radical with one another? Maybe. Maybe. you got the same problem with your kids, though, moms and dads. You're always sitting there going, how much do I help my kid? What should I do for them? What should I do for them? Because what if I'm condoning irresponsible behavior? The issue is, is that we have a responsibility toward one another. But it's not just this kind of responsibility. Um, that's one aspect of it, the devotion to the fellowship. Quickly, the other aspect of devotion to fellowship. Look at verse 46 again, day by day, attending the temple together and break excuse me, breaking bread in their homes, they received their bread, or sorry, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, they got together, okay? They got together to encourage each other, to have fun, to fellowship, to celebrate, to support each other. They went out of their way to make sure that everybody felt part of the community. If you want to know more about that, join the True Community Book Club. They were in relationship with one another to the degree where they were finally in a place where they could be absolutely open and honest with other people about their sin, confessing it to one another, finding God's forgiveness as they did that. James says do that, confess your sins to one another. And it's not my sins against you necessarily that I'm confessing. I'm being honest with, with how my relationship with God was. I, I have a friend who years and years ago came and confessed her sins to me about stuff that had happened in her past 
that had nothing to do with me at all. But she felt a burden to fulfill what James says about confessing her sins to one another. And I watched as this woman's face went from this with hair in front of a face and shame. And as she confessed and as she heard God's forgiveness from my lips, not because I'm a minister, but because I was a friend, her face went like this. And she shone, she beamed like a transformed angel. It was one of the most beautiful things I had ever witnessed. Listen, guys. The title of this sermon is Weirdos. The church should be weird in a good way. We have been colonized by the culture, okay? Our, our culture is individualistic. So our definition of the family is the people I'm blood-related to, and therefore I can't get rid of them, even if I don't like them. I have to care for them. The church, however, we say, is my spiritual family, and I'm voluntarily responsible for them. But verse 42 says that they were devoted. They were devoted. In the Bible, to devote something was to give it away, to separate it for something, to put it aside for something and be utterly committed to it. So you devoted things to God and you said, that is for God and God only. And they were devoted to each other, saying, we are for one another. You lose your autonomy. It is the absolute opposite of the culture's teaching, and that's why it's so weird. And today, the very best resistance to the colonization of the church, I am convinced, is the fellowship, is our commitment to one another. They were together. It shaped their identity. Even the people that they didn't like, you never get to choose your family, right? Not all siblings get along real well, but you say, yeah, what am I going to do? She's my brother. No, she's not. He's my brother. <laughs> she's my sister. What am I going to do? Just cut him off? I can't. I wrote, it th I wrote this. Perhaps in the early church it was more necessary to accomplish this kind of fellowship because they were this small pressured religious community surrounded by a hostile culture that believed radically differently from them. They had to go out every day into that culture and, and swim against the tide at work, uh, doing business with people who had very different values with them or in their workplaces, working with colleagues and co-workers who thought so differently from them about life and what makes life worth living. They faced pressure to conform, to fall in line, even from their government and its policies. And they dealt with the constant bombardment of the media. They felt like such a minority in a surrounding culture that constantly misunderstood them and misrepresented them and their views and their motivation that they just needed to be together for mutual encouragement and support and love. It was just a very different time back then. Or is it really? How do we do this? Very quickly. 
you got to go back to the gospel, okay? It doesn't just say that they hung out and did stuff together and, and were interested in the apostles' teaching. It said that they were devoted. Jesus Christ, our Lord, was devoted to us. He set himself apart for us. He separated himself for us so that he could live for us, that he could die for us. He took all his resources and he poured them out to make us his people. He held nothing back. He's not asking anything of us beyond what he had done. We've got to stop. So two quick results. You know, in verse 43, it says... Um, where are we here? And awe came upon every soul. A community like this, devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, it creates a community where, where awe and wonder is the order of the day. People who are lost in picturing what Jesus had done for them and think not twice about pouring themselves out for each other because it has sunk so deeply in them. And the, the, count, the country, the, the people around them, the culture around them, they're also in awe. They're looking at them sideways and going, you're weird, but you're attractive. And the result, of course, is verse 47. They had favor with all the people. I read an article today about how there is a growing industry in big cities uh, where companies are, are creating communal living communities. So this will be a house, like a 10-bedroom house, that has 10 people living it, all singles in Manhattan or San Francisco or something like that, and all the people there voluntarily sign up to live in this house because they are so desperate for community. And yeah, there's some developer who's making a little bit of money on it, maybe even a lot of money on it. But it's the very thing, the secular world around us sees the need and is starting to find ways to meet the need. And here we are, the church. If we were in awe, and we lived this way, and the word got out, I promise you, we would have favor, and, and there, would be, there would be people added to our number day by day. Um... We sang this song, Is He Worthy? I hope, you, I hope you go home and YouTube it or whatever. Andrew Pe you got to do the Andrew Peterson version. It's better than the Chris Tomlin version. Um, YouTube it. Watch it. Listen to it. As you think about your life and the hardships you face and the struggles that you're going through, maybe you deal with mental health uh, struggles right now. Maybe you have tremendous financial issues right now. Maybe you have relational issues right now. Maybe you heard this sermon and you just feel lousy because you think it's over the top and you're wondering how on earth is this possible. Listen to that song. Because everything that I've been saying and everything that, that the church is called to be is rooted in this person, Jesus Christ. Is he worthy? He is David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this kind of church? He is. You know he is. We know he is. Pray with me. Father, 
Mamma mia, Father. We, we, we just get hammered by your word. <laughs> uh, but it's good, Father. We're, we're fearful. We know that we have self-centered hearts that don't want to do what you call us to do. Maybe we're just not being very creative. But we're not everything we could be as a church. Father, we don't want to be what we could be as a church out of guilt. Please let no one leave this place feeling guilty in a, in a bad way. Let us all leave convicted and excited about the opportunities you lay before us to be the church. It's already happening in all kinds of ways. Some of I know about and many I don't because what is wonderful is your spirit works through people in this community uh, and they just answer your call um, and they don't have to tell the pastor about it and they're just doing it and I praise you for that. But at the same time, we... We do long for opportunities to, to be visibly the church in the community that we live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.